It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rivals. People competing with another for the same objective or superiority in the same field of activity. Fantastic rivalry. It was intense. A lot of passion showed in it. I think the game that both teams look forward to every season. When you're the number one side in the world, everyone's going to play their best game against you. It's one thing being the hunter, but when you're the hunted, you're there to be shot at. Both chasing the same goals and dreams. I remember feeling really sorry for him. I knew I was going to beat him. I think there was needle between the teams, but just through wanting to beat each other so badly. You know, there was a mutual respect. Each fighting against the other. I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. I thought, wow, is it really that serious? When you're suffering and someone's better than you on the day and you're doing everything you possibly can to hold on to, to them and not let that gap get any bigger than a metre and you're praying for the end to come or you're praying for the next corner so you can rest a little bit, they're the hardest days. In this series, we bring together famous sporting rivals to hear a shared story from both sides. The triumph... The tragedies, the victories, the near misses, the laughter, and the sorrow. This is Reunited on TalkSport. In the series so far, we've brought sporting legends together with their rivals. They've spoke with passion, with regret sometimes with humour, but often with a strange fondness for each other. In today's programme, we're going to reflect on the best stories the sporting icons gave us during their exclusive and candid conversations. This is Reunited, the best bits. Tony McCoy, better known as AP, and Richard Johnson battled against each other for the best part of two decades. AP would take the jockey's title a record 20 times, with Johnson runner-up on 16 occasions. But the statistics only tell half the story. Over nearly 20 years, they pushed each other to the limit of sporting endurance, suffered horrendous career-threatening injuries, and both claimed big race winners over the other. Yet throughout it all, they remained friends, even when AP McCoy made a shock announcement in 2015. And the only one that knew that I was retiring at the beginning of that season was J.P. McManus. I hadn't told anyone really that I was retiring because I, you know, because I didn't want to. But I knew at the beginning of that season, I knew that if I was lucky enough to win the Jockeys' Championship, it was going to be my 20th year and I was nearly 41. And it just, it was the right time, you know. So my mum and my dad and everyone found out on television that I was retiring. So I remember Ruby Walsh saying to me afterwards, what are you going to do? 
And three years later, I'm still trying to answer, what am I going to do? Still playing a lot of golf. So, <laughs> you know. Obviously, we were all watched the race and thought it finished, and then we all sort of dashed off to probably get way out for the next race or whatever else. Then, then yeah, then suddenly there was like, you know, someone said, oh, he's just, actually, he's going to retire at the end of the year. So it was, it was shock, really. But again, I think it was, you know, it sort of, obviously it was his 200th win of that, that season. It was a big race on a Saturday. It as always, it, it was his perfect way of doing everything, which is very annoying because it, it, always, it always seems to work really well. I basically said to him, come back in and said, you'll be some embarrassment now if you don't win the Jockey <laughs> Championship next year. I said, you'll be a letdown to me and everyone else. Imagine me beating someone for 16-odd years that wasn't really any good. <laughs> I mean, what sort of, that just puts, the sort of selfish element was coming at me again. I was thinking, worrying about myself. Imagine if I beat a lad that couldn't actually win the Jockey Championship whenever I retired. I mean, how disappointing would that be? I would have retired the following year if I couldn't. If I, I, think I, if, I would have made you retire. On the 25th of April 2015, AP McCoy rode in his final race at sundown, which was won, of course, by Richard Johnson. And AP McCoy is in the drive position for the final time, but he's going to have to sprout wings here on box office as brother Ted and Grand Maestro fight it out over as they come to the final flight. Box office is in third. Needs something dramatic to happen here. It's not appeared to happen. It looks as if for the second time today he's going to be third. It's going to be no fairy tale ending for box office, and it's brother Ted and Richard Johnson. And then in third spot is AP McCoy on box office. That's it. Memories now, we have a plenty of AP McCoy, but not a winning one on this final day, as brother Ted is our winner. That was quite sweet. Looking back on it, I, I was, it, was, it was his day, but it's quite ironic, I think, really, after 20 years, I managed to actually beat him on the last race he ever had. Terrible, isn't it? I mean, the script didn't go quite go to plan that day. <laughs> no. The horse I rode was very well named box office. But three years later, he still hasn't won a race, so... Yeah. So the only good thing about him was his name and how much of a disappointment he was. But anyway, you know, I, I, it didn't bother me that much. It, you know, I, I had accepted the fact that I was, you know, that it was over. Like, so it was, it would have been nice to finish my last day riding a winner, but it was over, you know. So I was well used to it. I genuinely thought it was almost, yeah. The way it was meant to be. Ironic that, that, that yeah, like it was a 16 run, a handicap or something. So, so that it, was, it wasn't just like a four runner race where, there was only a few of us. It was big, big handicap at the end of end, end of the season, and and yeah, it was just almost weird how it, oh yeah, slightly ironic way to win his, his last race. And um, but again, I, I, the whole day for me, it, it was it was a very fitting day, and actually it went again. Obviously, it would have been perfect for him to, in his eyes, to win the last race. But um, yeah, I think it, it it went very well. Look at him grimacing. I'm actually starting to think that actually, you know what? That's actually the best horse, race that horse ever ran. So I actually got drawn better than anyone else. Has. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, he's still struggling for sorry. Yeah. There has been a lot of emotional parts. There was, there was, there was tears coming back on box office. I was trying to hide it. There was actually nearly tears going out in box office, but I, I, I pulled my goggles down so no one would notice. But um, no, it was a very emotional day, and it's something that I'll never forget. I never ever expected it to that. You know. The people that have come out and and um, and supported me, and um, you know, I said I feel very, I feel very honoured, very privileged. I said this earlier on today, like any sports person should. You know, you, we have a very lucky and privileged way of life. And as I said to the lads in the way room, that you enjoy every moment of it because the end doesn't have come round very quick. But with McCoy now retired, could he overtake him as the winning most jockey of all time? He may have lost the battle. Or could he win the war? 
it's going to be a long war, isn't it? <laughs> uh, look, it, it, it obviously, it, you know, realistically, yeah, it, it, it is possible. But I'm 41 now. This summer, he looks at too, doesn't he? <laughs> to be fair, yeah. Uh, Some of us have worked harder than others. He hasn't aged great, has he? Uh, <laughs> is it the Botox that works for you? Yeah, it's, it? as, as Richard Hughes pointed out, someone you don't see any wrinkles in a balloon, do you? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I've expanded, I seem to have lost a few wrinkles. Look, I'm, I'm loving riding and, and got great people to ride for. <clears throat> but whether I ride for one, two, three, four, five more seasons, I've, I've no idea. Obviously, if I could ride one more winner than him, that would be quite sweet. I'll get over it. You know, I'll, if, if he if he dies, no, he, tell no, you, he, won't, he wouldn't get over it. I guarantee. They'll they'll be you know there'll be someone having to help him on a horse in three or four years' time if he's still riding. With AP McCoy's retirement. One of racing's greatest rivalries ended, and Richard Johnson, after striving for so long, picked up where his old foe left off, and to date has claimed three jump jockey titles. But will we ever see a rivalry like it again? I don't know. Sport moves on, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Someone else comes and takes the, the place. You know, I don't know that, you know, I think because there's that rivalry for a length of time, then people, you know, get used to it a little bit, whereas... At the moment, no one has been able to to rival Richard. But it, not only not only that, it's 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 more the period of time that it that it is over. That I think that people, you know, it's a bit like I say, even like Premier League football, like the Arsenal and United era, where, where they, you know, where they were competing against one another, will ever be the same as what that was against, you know, the the, the Fergie and very Wenger years. You know, will it, will will they ever have that effect? So, but someone something will come along and, and replace it. That's for sure. For me, what. You know, when AP was champion for for that long, and obviously I was great to be involved in it. But I think there's I don't know any, any other sport that anyone has ever dominated for that amount of time, whether it's Federer or Schumacher or you know any other sport. Yes, certain people have dominated for four or five years, six years, for twenty years is 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 incredible. And I think that's what will be remembered from our generation is you know one man that dominated it and hopefully I'll I'll sort of be be sort of mentioned probably in the same it's, it's, it's the nicest thing he's ever said about me <laughs> I, think, I think that's that's the you know it, it, even when yeah you, even you think about it now I, well one it doesn't feel like that amount of time that I was riding with, with, with AP but I think that's the thing that is quite astonishing that for 20 years including injuries and everything else that he he managed to do that obviously I would have loved to be in a a pain and just obviously had a one or two, one or two uh, in the in in the middle of it to annoy him. But um, I think that that's the thing that I, I, I thankfully he didn't. <laughs> whether I wasn't quite good enough to beat him or uh, or whatever else, but I think to dominate a sport totally for that that amount of time is unheard of, and, and I don't think it'll ever be done again. Thanks, Richard. It's very nice of you. Know. Now you can say something about nice about me. <laughs> AP makes no secret of his footballing allegiance, being a huge Arsenal fan and his team were at the centre of one of football's biggest and longest rivalries. In the late 90s and early noughties, two teams dominated English football. Until the emergence of Roman Abramovich's Chelsea, the Premier League trophy alternated between Old Trafford and Highbury, as Manchester United and Arsenal fought each other for supremacy. Two men who witnessed this rivalry firsthand were striker Andy Cole and keeper David Seaman. Alex Ferguson was building a formidable team, and Arsenal found themselves off the pace. 
We were changing. We became more of a cup team because we did quite well in the Cup Winners' Cup and we'd won the FA Cup and we did the Cup Double. Um, so it weren't like we were not winning anything. We, we were going season by season by picking something up. But Man United had become more dominant. Change was needed. And the next man in charge at Arsenal would ensure the Gunners would be a match for Alex Ferguson's team. So then we saw it on TV and we were like, you know, we did a few rumours that it could be this guy. When we heard the name, we were like, we literally was like, Arsene who? Where's he from? It was a, a really strange one. and. I think that the, the recommendation came from Glenn Hoddle. But as soon as he came and, and he just went straight in, and just changed everything. He changed the way that we trained, you know, with all the massage and all the the nutrition side of it, you know, the way that we ate and, and the way that we played as well. You know, he, he gave he gave people a chance to express themselves a bit more, even to the point where like Tony and Baldy and mine are actually playing out from the bike. You know, and I was like, yeah, this is more like it because I'd had a double hernia operation through kicking the ball so long every every um, season. With the appointment of Arsene Wenger, the rivalry between Arsenal and Manchester United accelerated. It had it all. North versus South, Manchester versus London, a quiet Frenchman versus the grizzled Glaswegian, who gave a new meaning to the word hairdryer. The way the boys used to speak about him, and obviously, try your best not to go on his bad side and all this kind of stuff. And when he loses it, you know, he loses it and don't be surprised and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, no, nah, he can't be that, he can't be bad. And then once you get ingrained in the fabric and then you see what his work ethic, his just alone, and then you see the players' work ethic, and then you start to appreciate why the players are where they're at. And then when you don't play particularly well and you see him lose it, I'm saying, I thought, oh my God, is this allowed? Well, as I got more and more into the football club, I started to understand it. It's not just from him. Everyone from that football club wants to be winners. But it's fair to say, Arsene Wenger took a more diplomatic approach to dealing with his players. Arsene's way was that not a word would be said. And I remember when we were getting beat at, at home at Highbury, and we all walked in and Pat Rice came in behind us and he started shouting at a couple of the players and Arsene just turned around in front of all the team and went, Pat, sit down and be quiet. And we were like, whoa. You know, he's actually shouted at one of his own staff. And, and this was the way that he had it. You know, so it was complete silence. For 10 minutes, you had your drinks, you got your energy bars, did whatever you needed to do. But you didn't speak, you didn't row, anything like that. And then he would speak for the last two or three minutes. Ah, right, you would go. And that's, that, that was Arsene's way. He, he didn't like conflict. He hated conflict, even with players. Even when he used to put the team sheet up and the player wasn't in and the player would be like, can I have a word? He'd be like, no, I will speak to you Monday. And then he'd avoid it like the plague. <laughs> it was strange. Arsene Wenger would always ask, he'd, he'd give us the players a little piece of paper and he'd say, right, write down the trophies in priority. And all the foreign lads would put Champions League. All the English lads would put the Premier League. You know, and it was the, that's... You know, we, we always wanted to win the league. You know, the Champions League is a little bit like a cup knockout, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But winning the league is the benchmark of how good you've been that season. You know, mm -hmm. and, and, and in them times, if it weren't us, it was them. You know, and there was very rarely any other team in it. Yep. And that, that's exactly what I was saying. That The crazy thing with uh, Sir Alex was we'd win the league, we celebrate, it's over, finished. Yeah. You get in the dressing room, like, go have a few drinks and, that, and then that's it, bang. Yeah. He's talking about next season. Yeah. And he always stressed us every pre-season, best team after 38 games. 
You know, the cup mm. games are bonuses, win the European Cup bonuses, of course, but we need to be the best team after 38 games. Yeah. That's what was special because you always spoke about if you're not doing it, I'll move you on and I'll yeah. bring somebody else in. In the 97-98 season, Arsenal and United would first clash at Highbury in November, with some pundits already questioning Arsenal's title ambitions. Arsenal went 2-0 up before United pegged them to 2-2. And David Platt scored a late, crucial winner for the Gunners. Winterburn. Platt! What a story! I just remember the late goal Platt he got. Yeah, I remember his celebration. Yeah. <laughs> it did something weird with his hands, which play, he always yeah. used to do. Running off like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I remember that one because I think we went 2-0 down, I think. We went 2-0 yeah. down. I think it was Oli. Was it Ollie and Teddy that, that, that evening? No, oh, I don't say it was Teddy. I, th I think it was. I think it was Ollie and Teddy that evening, yeah. And, you know, when, when we come back from 2-0 down and then 2-2, two, two we thought, yeah, to come to Highbury and come back from that result. Yeah. You know, I know. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a big result for us. You know? And then when Platy got the late winner, he's like, that's all we need. But, yeah, but, but massive games, isn't it? Big, big game. Yeah. But at Highbury, because the pitch was so tight and the punters were on you, and yeah. like that, that made it even... But and he was under lights and under lights at Highbury, especially at the best of times. But when yeah. when Man United come to town, you know, you, you you remember things like that. So when I was playing for Manchester United, to play at Highbury under lights was yeah. special, very very yeah. special. But we didn't get the result that evening. I think, oh, it was a great feeling being two 0 up, but then you know the next goal is really vital, and obviously it went to Man United and then they equalised. So then you're on a bit of a downer, and it takes a lot of strength from the team to be able to, to actually kick on from that and get a winner yeah I agree. you know normally the other team that have actually got the two goals back have got more confidence in their in their ability at that time mm. and they normally go on to win but for us to do it like that was was special for us and against man united it's even more special yeah because we we made a habit of um getting goals coming back and beating teams mm. you know so I, I i thought when we went to 2-2 two -two, i thought pff. We're going to beat them now. Despite Arsenal's win, by Christmas United were 13 points ahead of sixth-placed Arsenal. Another title for Alex Ferguson's team looked on the cards. And David Seaman wasn't optimistic. We were struggling a little bit, but every time we had like a draw or a loss, they were always getting a win. So they were just getting further and further apart, even to the point of almost like we were thinking, well, we ain't going to catch them. But after the festive break, Arsenal went on a phenomenal winning run, while injuries began to plague United. But okay, we had we had a few games in hand, you know, which gives you a little bit of hope. But you're thinking, yeah, but we still got to win all them yeah, games. Yeah, to have the points. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. I mean, no excuse because injuries and part and parcel of it. I mean, when when we played Arsenal the second time, I mean, we had loads of injuries at the back. Right. I mean, with John Curtis, I think John Curtis. Played full-back, never moved in the centre-half. We had injuries there and injuries in midfield. All I remember of the game, which is weird, is Mark's goal and then that fan celebration in the crowd yeah, 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 where he's yeah, like yeah. really like pumping himself, you know. And I it's... remember that one. He looked, but like, I remember he, yeah. looked like he had problems, didn't he? <laughs> I do remember that one. Yeah. Still to come on Reunited on Talk Sport. You just have to sit and think about why you're in the sport, the years that you've already put in to get to that point. The hundreds of hours, the thousands of miles, the, you know, the tons of steel you've lifted in the weights room and 
I just suddenly decided I wasn't going to go home empty-handed. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. At the time when I first saw him stumbling, I was just like, yeah, what an idiot. And I was quite annoyed, like in a big brother kind of, what a stupid idiot kind of way. So my body was on survival mode, whereas my brain was on still racing and finishing mode. To catch up on all the episodes in the series, the Reunited podcast is available from Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Reunited from TalkSport and hit subscribe to never miss an episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Reunited, the best bits. We're reflecting on the stories our sporting icons gave us when they were reunited with their rivals. Millions watched the beautiful game, but in the 80s, athletics also dominated with sold-out stadiums and the BBC and ITV often simultaneously streaming meets. At that time, British Athletics was blessed with three exceptional middle-distance runners, Seb Coe, Steve Avett and Steve Cram. Between them, they would claim Olympic, World, European and Commonwealth titles, smashing world records on a regular basis. Many decades later, TalkSport reunited two of this famous trio to get the inside story on an extraordinary time for British sport. In Moscow in 1980, Cram and Co would compete at their first Olympic Games. But while Cole was seen as a nailed-on medal chance, especially in his favoured 800 metres, the young Steve Cram had different ambitions. Just pleased to be there in many respects. I, no, it was you know, an opportunity for me 
we've talked before about just being there and, and observing these guys and what they were going through and how they were conducting themselves and all of that was so there was a one level that was a learning experience and then the, from athle- from an athletic point of view a different learning experience first time you know at an Olympics but also trying to find where my level was first up for Seb was the 800 meters where he would face another British rival in the shape of Steve Ovette. Cole was the reigning world record holder, but things didn't go to plan. No, I'd had a shocker in the 800 meters, partly through inexperience and partly through my own blunders. I'd had a fairly, I think you'd best describe it as a sort of factory floor conversation with my old man about, you know, why I was in the sport and what, what I had to do to sort of turn it round. Yeah, it was a fairly interesting three days that athletes go through when they're sort of trying to pull the knitting back together. Oddly enough, the, the thing, I, and, and it, you know, I'm sitting here, the thing that resonated with me, I think I seem to remember most, was actually your, your press conference um, kind of afterwards. I think. After the eight? Yeah. And <sighs> I, it, it, I do remember that. I, yeah. I, I didn't know Seb <laughs> very well at that point, and I... I and, I'll be brutally honest, you know, I think you know, it was a surprise result for most people, but, you know, right, OK, well, Vets won the 800. And, but I remember sitting watching the press conference and he, I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. You know, that, that's somebody who, um, it, it really, I don't know why, it really hit home to you. I was 19 and I thought, wow, is it really that serious? <laughs> like, you know, I hadn't experienced anything like that. And I think it's the first time I sort of looked at that and I sort of took a long, hard swallow, thinking, wow, this is part of, you know, being at that level, which I hadn't yet experienced. I wasn't broken, but, you know, it was... But it, look, you know, you go in there as the world record holder, you go in there on paper two seconds faster than anybody else in the field and you screw up really badly. It was the £50 notes of journalistic currency. I think the one of the nationals ran a photograph of me training the following day and the headline was Coe's Trail of Shame. Mm. You know, I had journalists who wouldn't have known which way around the track you were running, becoming instant experts about all the mistakes you'd made. And in fact, the funny thing was that um, I never, we never really discussed it much with my old man. I mean, I remember a moment in the Olympic Village where he's sitting there and he's, he wasn't a great, uh, if I'm being honest, he wasn't a great lover of journalists at the best of times. And some of them were coming up and offering advice. And, you know, in fairness, some were well-meaning and I think Bren came over and and he sort of pulled out an old piece of paper. He was he started life as a mathematician, so numbers were really his thing. And he started throughout this sort of these various offers of 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 support and help and advice. He was just kept scribbling, and at the end of it, he said, "Right, I've heard enough." And they all sort of disappeared. And he looked at me and he said, "You know, it's really simple. Given the number of errors you made over the frequency with which you made them." And over the distance that you made them, it is well nigh impossible for you to screw up that badly again in, in a decade. So the, the, the stats and the maths guy came to, and I have to be honest, that was about the only conversation we really had. And I think it's, uh, Steve, I think would probably agree with me. You know, when you're pulling yourself out of a hole, it's not really coaches that are doing that for you. You just have to sit and think about why you're in the sport, the years that you've already put in to get to that point, the hundreds of hours, the thousands of miles, the you know, the tons of steel you've lifted in the weights room. And I just suddenly decided I wasn't going to go home empty-handed. Seb wouldn't leave Moscow empty-handed. He would take the gold in the 1500 metres, a race that saw Coe, Avet and Cram race together for the first time. 
And while many of the press pack might have been surprised by the result, Steve Cram can remember having doubts about Yvette's ability to claim a second Olympic title. I was very surprised how Yvette seemed a little bit preoccupied with where Seb was and what Seb was doing in that hour, you know, warming up, because uh, I was kind of kicking around with him. His coach, Harry Wilson, was looking after me. And, and even in the call-up room, etc., it, it looked to me like a man who I thought should be supremely confident seemed a little bit preoccupied still with his opponent. So that, that kind of put a... It was something I, I think I picked up afterwards rather than... But in the race... It was a bit pedestrian early on, and which suited me fine. I was a bit tired after having you know, got to the final. And then uh, our good friend, well, I say good friend, um, Jürgen Straub got things going. Um, yeah. And suddenly the race was on and, and everyone gets moving and, and I'm, I'm just running my race to hang on because it was hard. The last six, 700 metres was, was really hard. We came into the home straight and every, the race has gone away from me, obviously. And I was aware that I was last because there was only nine in the final, and all of a sudden, and I had, a, had an almighty battle with a guy called Dragan Stravkovic of Yugoslavia mm. down the home straight uh, to avoid being last. And I, which which sounds a bit stupid, but you know, you, it, 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 any any athlete, you, you'll fight. Hopefully, you'll fight for every place. Across the line, and this is the important thing, because of the expectation in my mind that Ovet would win this. I what it, what I was met with. So I've finished like three seconds after these guys. Seb is on his knees on the ground, pretty you know, sort of prostrate, and Ovette, or this maybe took you know, a few seconds afterwards, and Ovette's got an arm in the air, and I genuinely went to Ovette, congratulated him, and I think I may well have patted Seb on the back and said, you know, tough luck or whatever, completely and blissfully unaware <laughs> that Seb had actually won. And it wasn't until the next few seconds unfurled where Seb got up and I started looking up at the screen and going, ooh, Hang on a minute. He, he, he must, in, in hindsight, he must have thought we were both taking the piss because I thought he got the silver medal. So I couldn't imagine that, you know, when I came into the finishing straight and he was still there and Jürgen Straum was there and I got past Jürgen, I assumed that he was sort of sitting absolutely limpet-like on me and was going to come back at me. And the last 40 metres, I'm just sort of trying to remember that at that point in a race, you're not a middle distance runner, you're a sprinter, you know, all the things you're told to do. Hold your form, you know, don't don't start rocking and rolling or, or climbing the ladder. And so I had naturally assumed that when I got across the line that he had to have been, you know, immediately behind me. So I sort of said, oh, well, there you go, you know, honours even. And he looked at me, so you you thought he'd won. I thought he'd got the silver <laughs> medal. So, you know, he must have thought this was a sort yeah. of... Collaborative northern. He shouldn't put his arm up in there. No, it was. You know, he was I think he was waving at his. It, it at his was wife, an odd, odd uh, thing to do. Yeah. You're listening to the best of Reunited. We're reflecting on the great rivalries we've been privy to so far in this series, from AP McCoy and Richard Johnson to Steve Cram and Seb Coe. And then it comes down to DNA. Most sporting rivals live miles from each other, in different cities, countries, even continents. They perhaps only face each other a few times a year on the track, pitch, course or court. But for the Brownlee brothers, Alistair and Johnny, the rivalry is much closer to home. As two of the best triathletes in the business, they used to live together, still train together and compete together. It is a rivalry that is perhaps unique in modern sport. 
In this series so far, we have focused on the moment when two rivals' worlds collided. But for the Brownlee brothers, sibling rivalry has always been there, especially as they were both encouraged to take up sport at an early age. Alistair Brownlee. Well, I think, uh, you know, having my mum into swimming and encouraging us to go to the swimming club and my dad into a bit of running, I think that was important. I think what was probably more important was um, just giving both of us a kind of attitude of enjoying being outside, enjoying being active, always being on the go. Johnny Brownlee. I remember being taken on walks with my parents in the Yorkshire Dales and it was just one of those things on a weekend that you did. We went on epic walks on the, on the Yorkshire Moors and occasionally I didn't want to be there. You know, as a little kid, you're getting dragged by your parents. And, uh, but then my first real sporting memory was I used to swim for the local swimming club, which is Airborough. But you do 25 metre races and, and take part in that and come home with a few medals and then I was more interested with the, the sweets um, after the gala than the actual medals. But then we swam at Erba for a few years and then moved to the City of Leeds Swimming Club uh, and it became a little bit more serious. You go to more swim sessions more times a week and I remember that's when it first, well, probably when I was eight, nine, ten, I kind of started to think of myself as a swimmer. Older brother Alistair was also a keen swimmer. I got told if you join the swimming club you can do galas and, and win medals and uh, that captivated me at the time and, and that was it, yeah. But it was very quickly followed by like schoolboy cross country as well. Encouraged by his parents, Alistair would spend many an hour cycling, running or swimming. And when he heard about an event called the triathlon, he was keen to get involved. I remember it being in Nottingham at the time. The races were called the Milk Series. That was like the children's series. And it basically, it was just at a local leisure centre. And then you race around a field that was in the, in the same, very close to it, you know, out the back door of the leisure centre, bike round it and ran round it. Uh, and I think, I can't even remember, came top 10 or something and really enjoyed it. You know, I, I, as a kid, I was just all the, you know, from going from a swimming gala where someone says, go, you jump in and you swim four lengths to... Um, you know, doing this race where you you swam your whatever, your six lengths, you don't have to get out, remember to put your T-shirt on and your helmet and jump on your bike. You know, I think that really captivated me, um, the kind of intricacies of it from there, really. The younger Brownlee brother was also intrigued by what triathlons involved. Triathlon in the UK was definitely not a big sport. When I went to tell my school friends that I was doing a triathlon on the weekend, they would say, oh, does that involve horse riding? And yeah, no, 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 that's a different sport. The first time I did it was because um, Alistair wanted to do it, and I was in the car with my parents travelling to it, so they're like, well, he's doing it, so you might as well do it as well. As well. My dad tells a story of wanting to get up for school to go running through the woods and him um, switching the alarm off because he didn't want to go with me. It got more and more serious again. I, you know, I remember getting my first kind of international vest as a probably 14, 15 year old and, and that was another big moment. I remember Alistair qualifying for Great Britain for the first time. He was 14, 15 years old and he came back with his uh, with, with his kit and put it on the kitchen table and then you, know, you got the GB flag on it and you think, wow, my brother's representing his, his country, that's incredible. He must be reasonably good at that. Of course, with both boys regularly competing across numerous disciplines, it was obvious that at some point they would face each other. Johnny remembers clearly the day he lined up on the start line against his older brother, Alistair. I, the first time I kind of competed against him, reasonably competitive, was at a, a West Yorkshire schools cross-country race, actually, in York. And I, he was a senior, and I, I was the under-17 or something, I mean, you, you rang together. And that was the first, first race I'd really been on the start line with him. 
While millions around the world watched the Brownlee brothers win the Olympic gold in Rio, there would be another race later in the year which would see Johnny and Alistair become household names across the globe. Johnny takes up the story. I'd been to Rio, I'd uh, got the Olympic silver medal, and uh, Mexico was the final race of the year, and if I had won that race, I would have basically become world champion uh, if the other athlete came fifth. And the scenario was going perfectly, I was winning, my rival was, was coming fifth, um, and it was uh, great, you know, I was running there thinking I'm going to win the world champion the second time. And with about 2k to go, I started to feel a little bit weak, thinking, okay, it's a long triumph and it's hot. It's ridiculously hot competitions. I've never seen anything like it before. And then with about a kilometre to go, suddenly I go around the corner and my legs just start to go wobbly. And the first reaction is, oh no, I'm going to do everything I can to get the finish line. And then the, the, the remaining um, two minutes, I can't really remember at all what was going on. Johnny has to win. And to be sure of taking the title. And right now he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's starting to slow. And there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go. And Johnny is running out of time and is losing. He's losing his sense of direction. This is worrying. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Oh, at the time when I first saw him stumbling, I was just like, yeah, what an idiot. And I was quite annoyed, like in a big brother kind of, what a stupid idiot kind of way. Um, I I mean, I was running that race with him. I knew how hot it was, and so I was like pacing it really steadily. I, every time there was like a kick, I was just running back up to Johnny and the other guy I was running with, you know, just showing how to even pace it, pouring loads of water over me, and I was absolutely fine. Um, and Johnny pushed on probably with about 4k to go i was just like it's too early you can win this race with 1k to go and, and not risk this um and so at the time i was like yeah but even then it's hindsight so it's too late already you know I could, maybe i should have told him at the time maybe i should have said relax to him and it might have worked and uh, he would have been world champion <laughs> jonathan brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course and alistair's stopped to help him along and Alistair is gonna try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Um, there's a few flashbacks of Alistair grabbing hold of me and me thinking, just leave me alone. I can't run with you, I'm too tired. And also Alistair kind of threw me over the finish line and I was thinking, well, that's not very nice, is it? But what's going on physically is your body is so dehydrated that basically your body goes into shutdown to try and make you hit the ground and stop exercising because your body is overheating so much that if you keep doing that, it's worried it's going to do some serious long-term damage. So that's your body's response to hit the ground and to stop exercising. So my body was on survival mode, whereas my brain was on still racing and finishing mode. And that's the kind of thing you get. So Alistair came around the corner, grabbed hold of me and pulled me to the finish line. Johnny can hardly stand and Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home 
pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. So would Alistair have done the same for any competitor? Or was it brotherly instinct that kicked in? Who knows, and this is the question I've been asked a lot of times. To sit on the fence, but it is genuinely sitting on the fence. You know, it's an hour 45 into a race in 35 degrees. I'm probably close to the same situation. You get around a corner and you have, what, half a second to make the decision, and you make the decision. So whatever I sit here and postulate, and I can say, you know, I did it because of my brother, and I was thinking about the potential point situation of the world champs, and I've been in that position, and I have was passed by 10 people and thought it was a disgrace, so I always thought I'd help someone, and... I knew that the medical um, the treatment was at the end, so I had to get them to, you know, there's all these potential factors, but really you're not thinking about stuff like that. You, you're just making a snap decision to do what you do, and yeah, I did it, and I think that's all there is to it, really. The aftermath of that was strange, incredible. I can't remember a lot of the, the next hour and a half. I was in hostel beds on IV drips and going back to the hotel, and went back to the hotel after being hostel for a couple of hours. Everyone had gone out celebrating and uh, there I was in the hotel room. Looked at my phone, turned it on, it crashed, it went crazy with all the tweets and then I thought, okay, I'll go to bed and woke up in the morning to people wanting interviews and things like that. I was just disappointed myself for losing the world championships. I wanted to be a world champion and finish the year off perfectly, but it didn't happen. For a long time afterwards, Johnny was unconscious on a hospital bed. They wouldn't actually let me see how he was doing and some of the other athletes were like, what have you done? And there was actually like a... It went to whatever, the review board or, you know, some some board of deciding about rules. And uh, they they were deciding for ages whether they were going to get DQ'd or not, like an hour. And by the time, you know, even we're on, I was on the finishes, the podium for my third place, it got dark. So this really weird sense. Uh, but it was kind of cool at the same time. Well, Johnny wasn't even on the podium because he was in hospital. I was stood there you know, fielding questions from the media and being like, feeling like I was a cheat, thinking, what have I done? You know, this is a terrible thing. And then I stood on the podium, the whole crowd actually started chanting like Johnny and it, it was a really, really cool moment. Um, and then like Johnny said, the reaction to it was something yeah, you'd never even dream of. I went to bed that night thinking, what have I done? You know, I've never been on the wrong side of the rules in sport. You know, people are calling me a cheat. Did I do the right thing, didn't I? What a terrible end to the year, you know. Johnny just lost the world title. Um, and then, yeah, the, the reaction the next morning was incredible. Between them, the Brownlee brothers have been world champions, claimed Olympic medals, won Commonwealth and European titles, plus been victorious in countless ITU events around the world. An extraordinary haul of medals and titles. Still to come on Reunited on TalkSport. They beat us in our own backyard. Everyone was emotionally, physically just spent. We'd given everything, heart and soul, and we left everything on the pitch. And that's all you can ask of your team, to be fair, like in a particular World Cup final. Our lives, individually and collectively, were never going to be the same again. And just to have that moment as a group and know that we'd achieved something was pretty special. To catch up on all the episodes in the series, the Reunited podcast is available from Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Reunited from TalkSport and hit subscribe to never miss an episode. This is Reunited, the best bits. From blood brothers who grew up together to rivals from opposite sides of the world. The 2003 World Cup was held in Australia, who also happened to be the defending champions. 
George Gregan Captain Australia, Lawrence Delalio was the only England player who played every minute of every game of that World Cup campaign. It's a dark, rainy night on the 22nd of November 2003, and the clock is ticking down in the Rugby Union World Cup final. Over 80,000 spectators, many dressed in English white, hold their collective breaths as the ball flies across a scene illuminated by a thousand camera flashes. And then, for the English at least, an eruption of pure joy as the ball dissects the posts. So we play out the next 20 minutes of extra time. If it's still level, then it becomes sudden death. Wilkinson has got the distance. Unbelievable! 17-14. Johnny Wilkinson. All of 50 metres. Four from five for him. And then it becomes a bit of a, a chess match, really, because especially the way the referee was refereeing the contest, not just for us, for both sides, you know, yeah. you're not quite sure what's, what you're going to get from Andre. So it was all about field position. You know, for whatever we do, do not get caught in your own half. So you tend to see a lot more kicking in the game. Uh, Australia don't kick the ball anywhere near as much as they did in that final. And, and we obviously did kick the ball because we had a very good kickers in the team. We were becoming risk averse, both sides, because you didn't want to get yeah. caught in your own 22 or in your own half. And it just became a little bit of a, a chess match and uh, tit for tat, so to speak. Yeah, it's a good point, Lol, isn't it? Because when you're in that scenario and you you, you just don't want to give a, a soft penalty away and you, you don't know how the man in the middle is going to react, everyone became a little bit more passive. Like, everyone was climbing into it prior to that. But, like, I think there was that moment, hang on, I don't want to push the envelope here. Like, you'd rather side on caution rather than being a little bit too risky. And that was, that was definitely the feeling out there. It was like, get down, play in their half, like, back their defence, maybe let's potentially force an error. And then, hey, maybe we can then hold on to the ball for a period of time and maybe force a penalty or maybe get a score. The chess match continued until history seemed to repeat itself. With England fans desperately looking at the clock, Australia equalised with another last gasp Elton Flatley penalty. While Flatley was lining up his kick, the England captain Martin Johnson was hatching a plan. Lawrence Delalio takes up the story. We were under the post and, and John was giving a few orders away and we were chatting about what we were going to do. There's no way Australia are going to run it back. If we kick it long, mm. they're just going to kick it out because uh, they're going to back themselves to get themselves back to the halfway line. So we had Lewis Moody on the field, Mad Dog Moody. And the one, <laughs> <laughs> the one thing he can do is run uh, and he will uh, run and run and run. So... We just said to him, look, if, if we kick it long, let's kick it to, to Matt Rogers because he's the less experienced kicker out of everyone in their team. He's a, he's a rugby leaguey, so uh, he's, he's used to running the ball rather than kicking. Mm. Um, so we're going to kick it to him. We're going to kick it to his wrong side. And Mad Dog, you're going to run as fast as you can from the halfway line and you're going to put as much pressure on him as possible. And we're going to narrow the angle on that so that he doesn't have much time to kick the ball out. And that's exactly what we did. So instead of having a, a line out on the halfway line, I think we might have just been inside the Australian half, um, which I know is, yeah, only, yeah, is only inches, but it makes, it makes a big difference. What followed will go down in English sporting history. We threw the ball to the back. And actually, it, it almost hit Lewis Moody in, you know, in the midrift. Uh, it was such a, such a low throw. They've gone long again. This time it works. Then Dawes showed great vision, stole a few metres. 
and then he's in the rain. And Dawson suddenly gets away. Matt just brought us that little bit of extra space and time which, which we needed to get within drop goal range. And then again, you know, the big figure of Martin Johnson just coming in there and saying, you know, we just need a couple more yards to trundle it on a bit. Martin Johnson and England staying composed here. Well, I remember, it's like yesterday, like you're calling it, like here it comes, here it comes, get on his right foot, like it was Georgie, I think Phil War. I'm on his left foot, like we're just coming here, it comes, here it comes. Again, Wilkinson in the place. Yeah, the whole Australian back row, who were an incredible unit as a group, just on their toes, ready to try and put the pressure on him, uh, as was George. We, we knew that we'd given ourselves enough space and time to create that opportunity for Tom. Australia come back, here it is for Johnny. And it was on his right boot, and I was on his, obviously on the other side, trying to get it on his left boot, and he just caught it. I'm thinking, here he goes, going to dive, what am I going to do? Johnny Wilkinson, he's got it! I remember, I remember when the drop goal went over, you sort of, everyone sort of celebrates for a, for a split second and then you realise actually there's still 30 seconds to go or 45 seconds to go. And, and uh, you know, we've all been involved in, in games where we've lost with the last play of the match. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's not a nice feeling, trust me. It'd be even worse in a World Cup final. So we're kind of running back into position and I'm sure there was more panic off the pitch than there was on it. There was instructions and things being fired across, you know, go stand here, do this, do that, and actually... And the actually, classic one, the classic one, catch the kick. Yeah, catch, yeah, yeah, catch, catch Like it. intentionally try to drop it. Tackle, tackle you know, and, and actually, you know, things went not as planned. You know, we had a prop standing in the, in the, in the place where the second row was supposed to be standing, and uh, Trevor Woodman ended up, you know, the smallest guy on the field at the time, um, and ended up catching the kickoff, miraculously. And uh, as I said, once he caught that, I think then we could be calm because we knew that uh, it was pretty much done. The player of the tournament, Johnny Wilkinson, has snatched it away from the Wallabies. Is this it? And England has joined Sir Alf Ramsey's Immortals of 1966. A dramatic, heart-stopping victory for England in extra time. England were world champions for the first time. But for George Gregan and Lawrence Delalio, the final whistle brought contrasting emotions. Yeah, everyone was gutted, like, but everyone was emotionally, physically just spent. We'd given everything, heart and soul, and you, you, we'd left everything on the pitch. And that's all you can ask of your team, to be fair, like, in a, particularly in a World Cup final. They beat us in our own backyard, and we can be proud of the effort. It was something along those lines. And we just we, we enjoyed each other's company, had a few beers, took a while to get, get showered and changed. And it's funny, I, I haven't shared this with many people, but... We played in 2001 the Lions series, a similar, same same arena, game three. See, Jono's captain of the Lions, and um, I'm, I'm coming out of the change room after the final, and I think he's just probably finished his presser. We bump into each other, and it was almost like deja vu from two years ago. I said, mate, you're in the winning change room this time. How's it feel? <laughs> he had a big smile on his face. Winning the World Cup final, it felt like it was climbing Everest. Just to be in that changing room, lots of different emotions, some guys crying, some guys laughing, some guys just doing nothing because they're just exhausted. It was just about opening a bottle of beer and just looking at each other and just saying, well done, mate, you know, we've, we've delivered on our promise. And uh, I think that's what made it special because I knew that for those five or 10 minutes when we were on our own as a group, and it wasn't just about the team, it was about the, the team behind the team, if you like, all the other players who 
weren't lucky enough to be on the field, but were a massive part of what we did. It was about the support team, the coaches, the, the medics, the, you know, just everyone involved because it really was a huge effort. And just for that moment on, our lives individually and collectively were never going to be the same again. And just to have that moment as a group and know that we'd achieved something was pretty special. I think we, we recognise that England aren't supposed to win finals, you know, that we've won one in football in 1966, you know, so I think we recognised that we had an opportunity to change that and, and write our names in history. But obviously, if we hadn't, you know, I'd probably be in jail now, serving a life sentence for murdering the referee. You know? You're listening to the best of Reunited on Talk Sport. In the series so far, you've heard from sporting icons such as A.P. McCoy on his rivalry with Richard Johnson, Andy Cole and David Seaman on the great Manchester United and Arsenal clashes, Steve Cram and Seb Coe who thrilled millions with their races in the 80s, the Brownlee brothers who put family before medals, and finally, the great England-Australia rivalry which peaked at the Rugby Union World Cup final in 2003. To catch up on all the episodes in the series, the Reunited podcast is available from Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. Just search for Reunited from TalkSport and hit subscribe to never miss an episode. This has been a tongue-tied media production for TalkSport. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of Howard Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here.